It's time for the Security Token Show. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in security token news. Coming from across the globe to your living room. And delivering all the latest STOs and getting you up to date on what's happening in the market. So what are you waiting for? Let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Security Token Show. I'm your host, Harry Conies. Of course, I'm joined, as always, by Kyle Solomon. We're here in Miami, Florida, ready to bring you the latest and greatest news. Good to be here, Kyle. Always a pleasure. Oh, yeah. Episode 188. We are chugging along with the news. We've got a great episode lined up for you today. But before we dive into everything from the top five all the way through all of the Coinbase updates in their SEC legal fight, we are going to talk about our sponsor, which really quickly is BitGo. Now, if you don't know BitGo, they are a custody and wallet solution provider. And the reason that we're shouting them out today is because they're working with INX for a fully integrated wallet solution for security tokens, but of course, offering services on digital assets of all types. And so BitGo specifically has a enterprise-grade solution for family offices, institutions to get involved in this industry, to do it compliantly and securely with their multi-factor authentication and all their different technical pieces that are way over our heads. They are reducing the risk of the single points of failure in the digital asset economy, providing a better solution and service for INX customers. So you can use that on INX, but shout out to BitGo for powering the technology. That's awesome. Thank you, BitGo, for being our sponsor. You're making this show possible as always. And with that, Kyle, I think we're ready to dive into the top five. And kicking off our top five this week, we have the Bank of International Settlements, international organization that helps set the tone and standards for what's going on in central banking operations and regulation. And they recently came out through their innovation hub, which by the way, has been in business for four years or in an organization for four years. And they are the ones that are leading the charge on central bank digital currencies and the adoption of the technology specifically. That's what they actually outlined is their main focus. And now they've offered additional guidance on launching a CBDC that is able to be used without an internet connection. They recognize that you may not have internet connection. You may have to have offline transactions. How are we going to track those payments? They're thinking through a lot of these pieces, which goes to show that they're putting a lot of work into actually building out a fully-fledged solution. A digital currency that is able to be used offline. That's uh, obviously going to require some deep thought and thinking. That sounds like the BS is leading the charge on great stuff. Moving to number four, we've got news that Deutsche Bank and the SNBC have joined the Patriot DLT uh, platforms. This is actually huge news. They're a, a Singaporean firm, but they're actually uh, co-founded with JP Morgan. So this is a huge deal. Uh, unlike the JPM coin, which is more like, you know, blockchain-based bank accounts, we're talking about here interbank cross-border transactions, specifically across multiple currencies. That's what they're going after with, with this platform. And Obviously, Deutsche Bank, quite a big name to, to start off. So congratulations. That's a big news from Patriot deal. That's totally the reason why we have blockchain technology, right? You've got a ton of different payment networks. If they're not all using the same rails, they're never going to be able to work together. 
And then the number three, Open Trade, a new startup in the tokenization space, just closed their seed round funding, $1.5 million, with their goal is to build a DeFi protocol specifically for structured products. We're talking U.S. Treasury liquidity pools. We're talking investment-grade commercial paper and even trade financing, which we've seen from Centrifuge and other businesses in the past. They had their round led by Sino Global, as well as Circle Ventures, Polygon Ventures, and many other active VCs in the industry, many more institutional and venture capital players getting involved in the tokenization space. Love to see that funding activity happening in the space again, Kyle. Moving on to number two here, we've got Standard Chartered or Stanchar for short, and they're launching into digital custody with Dubai, folks. So they have officially uh, come into a partnership. Their subsidiary, Zodia Custody, will be powering a lot of their custody services. Uh, naturally, this is a pretty wide uh, effort because the Dubai has a very strong uh, uh, focus and effort to become a top four financial hub using blockchain and digital assets as part of that strategy. And naturally, Kyle, security tokens and tokenization will fall within that world. Uh, so it looks like Stanchart might actually be powering a lot of that custody. Absolutely right. And in the number one, the thing that you cannot miss, you need to know this week is digital asset is a startup company in the APAC region as well as international with global operations. They are launching a blockchain banking network through their Canton blockchain network. This includes BNP Paribas, Deloitte, CBOE, Goldman Sachs, Broadridge, S&P, Microsoft, and others. This is a private blockchain network. It is now live. It has atomic swaps, smart contracts, everything you love about the DLT blockchain technology. They're bringing on all of these different banks into their network. It's built using the DAML coding language that they built themselves, and they are driving serious institutional adoption, just like many of the other things in the top five. Shout out to Digital Asset for more pioneering. That's definitely a clear winner, which we're going to learn more about right now with Peter Gaffney. Good morning and welcome back to the institutional segment within the Security Token Show. I'm Peter Gaffney, head of research at Security Token Advisors. This past week was dominated by the recognition and the need for interoperable solutions across major institutions, even on the private blockchain and DLT side. So we have two such headlines that fit that bill exactly. First, Digital Asset, a blockchain infrastructure provider who's quite well known for its DAML programming language, which underpins Goldman Sachs' digital assets platform and Broadridge's trillion-dollar-a-month repo network, unveiled its Canton network. So Canton is designed to, in my eyes at least, arrival a public permission blockchain on an institutional level. Digital Asset already carved its lane by working with major investment banks and capital markets players across the board. This is the next step to better connect those exact players and make more use of the whole decentralization aspect that people think of when they think of blockchain. So now on a public blockchain, you don't really know who the major operators on that network are. We hear differing opinions from banks on if they're even allowed to issue products on a publicly reliant network like that. Although, of course, we've seen a couple examples, a la ABN AMRO and Societe Generale. A public permission chain adds a layer of security and comfort to that. As you may know, who or at least what types of parties are responsible for maintaining the network? So Providence Blockchain and even Avalanche's subnets are examples that come to mind here. With the Canton network now, digital assets clients can all act as node operators and achieve some of the, you know, some of those efficiencies that decentralized public blockchains are indeed revolutionary with. The added sweeter to, to major firms is that you know exactly who you're alongside. 
you know, maybe alongside the company of Broadridge, Deloitte, Goldman, S&P Global, SIBO, BNP Paribas, et cetera, et cetera. In a similar vein, even JP Morgan, who's been building its Onyx division with perhaps some of the most impressive private blockchain-based initiatives thus far, co-founded the Partier Network with Standard Charter and DBS Bank as a network for multi-currency interbank payments. Rumor has it, even the OCC provided a non-objection letter to JP Morgan, enabling it to use the platform in the United States, although this will need to be confirmed upon launch, of course. For added clarity here, JP Morgan's JPM coin is solely used for JPM customers and clients within the bank. Partier would actually be an interbank solution similar to the tone that Canton just said. Lastly, looking at the United States, specifically the U.S., FedNow is a unique thought. Not quite a central bank digital currency, but rather an instant payment system between banks, not unlike Partier's mission. FedNow was developed by the U.S. Federal Reserve on an avalanche fork called the Metal Blockchain, which was built on the foundation of the Bank Secrecy Act in efforts to really provide a very feasible compliance-focused blockchain solution for future applications. So in theory, FedNow could be supported by any service providers integrated with Avalanche, which there's a number of them, although it looks like things will be limited to bank-to-bank interactions for now. So that's all for today's institutional updates. Thank you very much for joining me. Now check out Sam Sachs and his breakdown of the markets. Hello and happy Monday. The security token market cap has plunged this week over 12% to $14.452 billion. This is almost exclusively due to a negative group losing close to $2 billion in market cap over the past week. However, in better news, newly launched startup OpenTrade unveiled a $1.5 million funding round led by Sino Global and including Circle Ventures and others. OpenTrade will launch a DeFi protocol for structured finance products in the second half of 2023. This will include liquidity pools of U.S. treasuries, investment-grade commercial paper, and trade finance. It plans to use Circle's USDC stablecoin for funding and will integrate with procure-to-pay systems, supply chain finance systems, and ERP solutions to provide liquidity for corporates. In some ways, it's not only dissimilar to Marco Polo, which is heavily integrated with ERP. The big difference is that corporates can be in the driving seat versus relatively slow-moving banks. The platform in which it will trade on is still to be determined, and we're going to follow all this information as it as breaks, and more details are emerging seemingly daily. However, in other news, the chair of the U.S. House of Representatives Financial Services Committee and six, six subcommittee chairs have sent a letter to the SEC Secretary Vanessa Countryman voicing their concerns over the agency's proposed advisory client's custody rule. This is a new rule that was recently proposed. However, In the letter, Financial Services Committee Chair Patrick McHenry and his colleagues write that the SEC was exceeding its authority in this proposed rule, known as the Registered Investment Advisor Rule, or the RIA, which toughens requirements for qualified custodians of client assets. According to their letter, the proposed rule will apply to assets beyond the agency's jurisdiction, and this is going to include art, cash, commodities, and non-traditional assets, including security tokens, and it's going to impede, quote, the jurisdiction of other regulators by imposing custody rules on entities that already have their custody practices regulated by another regulator. The digital asset market often turns to state-chartered banks and trusts for banking services. The proposed rules of restriction of qualified custodians to federally chartered entities would create complications for them and reduce competition, the letter argues. 
And why fix what's not broke is what essentially what they're saying in this letter. In addition, the proposed rule would interact with the SEC's staff accounting bulletin 121 to disadvantage the banking industry further. So what they're saying is the House Services Committee is saying, let's create, let's keep competition. This bill is going to reduce competition. It's going to restrict who can actually own them. And so they're saying, let's make it available to everybody. Let's make it so anyone can fight for custody of non-traditional assets. It's not in your business to determine how, how assets you guys don't cover can be controlled. And to that, I can't, I can't disagree with that much. We're going to follow all these details as it comes out. But that's all for now. Have an amazing rest of your week and we'll see you next Monday. And moving into our main topic for this week, episode 188, you may have been seeing the headlines flying left and right. Coinbase and the SEC going for round two in all of their fights, although maybe it's round six or seven based off of how many crazy interactions they've had over the course of a bunch of years. We're breaking down everything that's gone on this week recently with the updates in this legal battle. But Herwig, I think we need to set the scene. Can you lay out where we're at so far, what's happened? With pleasure. This actually does mark the first time that Coinbase has gone on the offensive. Ooh. I think what makes this extra interesting. Uh, but yeah, let's set that scene real quick. Coinbase is well-known, uh, arguably the most popular uh, cryptocurrency exchange, at least here in the United States. Uh, and they've been a, a long-time leader uh, in the crypto field. Uh, I've been I think they were founded in 2012. Yeah, White Combinator. Company, early White Company, major VC backing. This is as good and high profile of a tech company as it gets. They did a massive IPO, uh, and which means they were approved by the SEC. Mm -hmm. uh, and along the way, to your point, they've had some spats. They tried to launch an earned product, which the SEC basically came in. They gave them what's called a Wells Notice, which basically meant that they said, if you don't turn off this earned product and... and uh, uh, you know, make sure you don't move forward with this or we're going to sue you. Um, so that was a nice way of saying don't launch earn. Uh, and now, of course, there is continued regulatory, you know, lack of regulatory clarity, I should say, Kyle. We've, we've been working in an environment uh, where to this day, unlike many other countries around the world, there is no legislation, no regulation framework, and no judicial precedence that really helps give the industry the confidence they need to operate. So Coinbase has had to take that risk of playing in this kind of, you know, gray area and being pretty concerned. So that's the stage, Kyle, is that, you know, right. uh, there's been a, a lot of challenges for Coinbase to be able to operate here. And now for the first time, uh, it looks like Coinbase is actually making their own moves against the end. Right. I like the way that you frame that offensive versus defensive. I thought about the same way in like round one and round two, right? Round one was them being on the defensive. They had a $100 million settlement with the New York Financial Services Department, specifically on the earned product. We've covered this at length. BlockFi was hit with a similar type of thing and many other platforms. It was rehypothecation, right? Where you're giving yield to investors for giving you capital. It kind of looks and acts like a bank and they weren't treating it as such. They also had their broker that they acquired that they couldn't get off the ground trying to figure out how to work within securities laws. And then there's also the insider trading cases with some of their, their insider people that were in dollar settle markets. Right. So all of these different days where they were getting attacked by regulators for claiming that they weren't compliant. Now we're seeing something different. So as you mentioned, the SEC canal the Wells notice, which basically said not only for the earned product, but now after we thought that was all settled, there was a new argument that they are listing unregistered securities 
on their exchange, just their basic product of buying and selling cryptocurrencies, the SEC said, yeah, you know what? A lot of those are unregistered securities. However, uh, it's worth mentioning that on that note, Bittrex has just basically been sued by the SEC. Ferris, good hand one. They have now fled the U.S. and I believe Chapter 11, their U.S. division. That's fascinating and very true. So we've seen this happen across the industry. Coinbase wasn't having it though. So what did they do with this with this uh, issue? I think they hired a team of lawyers to come back and do the very same thing and serve a Wells notice to the SEC. <laughs> uh, they put out a 70-page report and what we learned is this is pretty uncommon to release publicly. Uh, but in this case, Coinbase also released it publicly. But what they sent over to the SEC is a long report citing a lot of different case law and making a lot of arguments uh, that, by the way, this document will be taken you know, to court and be analyzed. And so whenever it's said by Coinbase, his mission of, uh, uh, his mission of anything that they've stated in this, uh, and it's now public record too, uh, but they've made some pretty clear arguments uh, that I think uh, make sense to a lot of people. The first is that the SEC approved their IPO, uh, which is, you know, that means they've considered that Coinbase is so properly available. Is tail. Yeah, it's, not, it's a very expensive process. There's a lot of review by the SEC's team to make sure that they are allowed to be, you know. They had no complaints then, so why now? No complaints then, that's their argument. Why didn't you bring this up uh, back then? Why is this only coming up now when, when you already had a chance to, to look at this? The other one is that there's been some back and forth. They're actually calling out the SEC that, you know, Bitcoin has been identified as a commodity. Ethereum at one point was considered a In their own communications, even. Their own communications, as you say, very, very important because now they're saying <laughs> it's a security. What sense does that make? And as a result of all of this lack of clarity, they're saying there is massive economic harm happening both from the innovation in the industry and the opportunities for America as a whole, but also naturally towards Coinbase. Because, you know, at the end of the day, if what, the result of out of all of this ends up being somehow that these aren't securities, and Coinbase has also suffered quite a bit uh, as a result of this kerfuffle, if you will. So, yeah, I also think the third really compelling point that Coinbase makes in their published brief was the fact that they have led the active conversations trying to establish these key concepts with the SEC over years and have a pretty long and well-documented paper trail of them trying to, you know, rectify a lot of these issues and having hesitance from the SEC. So now it's like, you, the SEC has been saying for quite some time, come in, get registered, work with us, and we'll solve these problems. It seems like Coinbase has been trying to do that for years. And now instead of working to try to build through this, now they just get, get sued and have to be shut down with no real conversation. That seems to be counterintuitive and certainly counterproductive to, uh, to the business practice. Naturally, this would come down to a judge to consider how much that is indeed the case. So I think that is absolutely a great point. Can the SEC go out and say, come in and register publicly, but then behind closed doors actually not facilitate that and not act on that? Hmm, very, very interesting. So the public response by Coinbase, we've never really seen this before. In fact, with the Success Network, we were able to host Mark Powers, a former SEC attorney, very experienced lawyer in this, this type of case law, a academic professor at FIU on blockchain law. 
he specifically noticed he can't remember a time where he's really seen anything like this. Right? The Wells notice is literally published. Like, it's like getting a subpoena and publishing that thing. And then not only doing that, but then publishing your whole response publicly. Um, it could be interesting because, of course, there's the side of trying to gain and win the court of public opinion. But this is not necessarily the status quo for this type of thing, which maybe has its own blowback. I think this whole thing is pretty unprecedented. So it is time for new measures, I think. Uh, we learned actually a lot in our, our power hour, as we call it, powers hour with uh, the Success Network. Again, that's our research platform launched by Security Token Advisors uh, for premium research and information, as well as lots of great programming like this. And, and he does this quite a bit. This one was very interesting because uh, he felt ultimately that perhaps the arguments, though, you know, maybe have some sentimental and fun. Sure, but may not have the strongest backing mm -hmm. to it. That's the the long story short of it. You'll have to pay to, full, to see the full recording of totally. Um, and we do have, fortunately for our STM readers, that uh, we have powers uh, powers on. It's called mm -hmm. uh, once a month. You'll be able to see what Mark Powers got to say. Uh, but you know, that was pretty much the the long story short of it. Is that yes, this is this is good. You know, at the end of the day, the Coinbase can't just kind of keep sitting back and and sitting in this holding pattern. So this is something that they almost kind of have to do. Um, but he points out that the SEC has unlimited resource and need. Uh, and that in many of these situations, it's like, yes, it looks bad on the SEC, but it's the SEC. And there's actually technically nothing saying that the SEC can't behave like this. And so therefore, you know, even though it's not great... <laughs> They may not actually have really much of a strong case at all. Uh, so very interesting. What is next, Kyle, hmm. is uh, specifically as a result of this, uh, the court has ordered that the SEC respond to these, as well as notice, within 10 days. Wow. Uh, so, next Friday. Yeah, we may, we may see a response sooner than that or within that uh, and actually continue to have this conversation, most likely on the show, because... Uh, the reason why this is so important, regardless of the, the case, is because it's so high profile. Perhaps this is already, we, we know that this is of the interest of Congress by now. This will further potentially fuel that fire, if you will. So maybe some kind of legislation mm. gets passed as a result of this. Um, we know that, of course, this going to court means we will have potentially some court results, right? So some judicial uh, precedent to be set as a result of this. So one way or another, even though maybe we would love to, have, to know, to say, to tell you that, hey, Coinbase, at least uh, potentially from the eyes of Mark Powers, doesn't have the strongest case or would love to have them have an even stronger case. Uh, I think at the end, in my opinion, Kyle, this is, this is good. Uh, this is good for the enforced Enforce the dialogue. We need to too much dialogue. impasse, right? I completely let's let's at least reach a conclusion. It's interesting to see the Chamber of Commerce actually submitted a brief supporting Coinbase in their initiative. There's been a lot of mounting pressure on Gary Gensler and the SEC because of their massive land grab and attempts to try to get more authority in places maybe they in the past haven't tried to be as enforceable. So it'd be fascinating to see how the courts feel about this. Coinbase then has a seven-day response period after the SEC responds. So there's certainly plenty of legislation yet to go. But this all hangs in the backdrop of the Ripple case and many of these other unregistered securities cases. is starting to mount up all these different pieces um, against the regulator. I think it's pretty cool that with this, it seems like it's going to be moving a whole lot faster than the Ripple case. <laughs> we may even see results of this before <laughs> we get a summary judgment, which is just what we're waiting for on that right now. So that could be any day. So that's an absolutely great point, Kyle, not to mention that 
Chair Gensler was just pulled in uh, for hearing Congress and got pre-grilled. About a lot of shit coming up soon. It's going to change the so the layout. It sounds like the setting is is right. It's been set, Kyle. Of course, folks, if you have questions or thoughts and comments about this, please engage. Put your comments in. Hit us up on LinkedIn, Twitter. You know, join our community. Uh, and with that, we're going to head over to our Companies of the Week and end the show. And to close out our show this week, we're talking Companies of the Week, two businesses that we wanted to specifically highlight for making a big impact in the industry and, of course, gets a nomination for Company of the Year. We do every year. We've done that a couple of years running now. So, Herwig, please let us know who is your company? Who's your choice this week? I mean, Cal, for me, it was an one. Uh, as a clear winner, I think this is extremely important for the industry as a whole, because it's all about getting Wall Street to adopt this technology one step closer to the full on-chain world that we see. So it's got to be digital asset, Kyle. Mm. Digital asset and their Canton protocol, uh, which is very cool, by the way. They do basically applications. So even though uh, digital asset owns the technology and provides it, the, all the different players and clients use their own applications. And this is very important for controlling data and privacy. Uh, that's a very, very uh, topical point right now. Totally. What's the future look like for tokenized securities? The fact that we've got all this regulation, all this compliance, you got data and privacy concerns. Uh, Wall Street has always very much so operated on a need-to-know kind of basis. So this is really upending things. And Canson Protocol has the potential to become the protocol, uh, one of the major protocols that trillions of securities eventually uh, and finance moves through. I mean, like you said on the top five earlier, Goldman Sachs, major, major bank, S&P, giant index provider, very well known. Deloitte, major consulting company. BNB Paribas, another major bank. CBOE, now you're getting in commodities and everything. And Cumberland, also a member. Wow. Um, uh, and Microsoft, huge, giant technology firm. Um it is a, a pretty incredible roster that they've put together. So uh, again, for those reasons, Kyle, I got to give it to Digital Asset for putting this new Wall Street alternative out there. Maybe one uh, alternative to, to JP Morgan and some of the other ones out there. Makes total sense. I think it's cool to see the composability, the interoperability between these different applications. It almost seems like it's a open source, but private open source kind of a thing, you know, where it's like anybody that's whitelisted in the sandbox can can build whatever they want on top of it. I think that's a really cool one and win piece. No one is to say, but uh, this is definitely one of those options that at the end of the day, data and privacy and all these things, these are competitive advantages from the banks. So the idea that you might just jump on something like a public chain, I can see why there's some hesitancy, yeah, especially for rolling sure. out this technology. And there's risk, there's compliance risk there just naturally. And so we'll keep you updated on that. But Kyle, I'm curious, who did you pick this week? So mine is a first-time winner. Which Ours is exciting to see. And it's a business that traditionally does a lot of fund management. So they do all kinds of mutual funds and money market funds processing of all those transactions. In fact, according to some of the more recent numbers I could find back from 2022, so a couple of years ago, was they're doing almost 200 billion euros in monthly transactions. So this is a huge fund manager, fund processing platform. They were acquired by the Carlisle Group in 2020. That's where I got all the numbers from with 2,300 clients, 43 countries really covering the gambit. And they just recently published a white paper detailing fund tokenization. This is an expert in fund management coming out saying, 
fun tokenization is the future. They specifically highlighted two use cases, kind of the two that we talk about here on the show all of the time, either tokenizing the shares of the actual funds themselves, which is all about access. It's all about increasing who can participate or building feeder funds, those types of things like we see with KKR or Hamilton Lean or Franklin Templeton. Or on the other side, it's tokenizing the actual underlying assets in the portfolio, allowing for automation and efficiencies in the portfolio management process. We've covered all of this at length. We had a main topic, the seven use cases for banking and blockchain. You need to go check that out a couple episodes ago if you haven't seen it before. But Calistone, we're in full agreement with you and we love what you're doing to drive adoption. Ah, congratulations, Calistone. That's a great, great pick. This is exactly what we're talking about, folks. The old guard is embracing tokenization. I know. It's happening right now. I'd <laughs> love to see those white papers get distributed. Uh, and... With that, Kyle, I think that's our show, folks. Hopefully, we'll catch you again next Monday. And as always, make sure you check out stm.co for all the latest trading uh, information, all the latest security token news. We're your one-stop shop. And happy tokenizing. <laughs>